This is a podcast asking the very best in the world how to stay resilient. I'm Michael Bungay-Stanier, and we will get through this. I'm not a parent, so of course that sets me up perfectly to give advice and suggestions and ideas to all you parents out there, because there's nothing I know you love more than a happily child-free person telling you how to parent. I will say, I'm not going to do that, Um, but I will say this. I have watched parents, uh, my two brothers come to mind, and watch them deal with young kids. And you know that phase kids go through where they just ask impossible questions? But why? But why? But why? But why? And you can see the parent moving from this calm, rational person to getting a little irritated to suddenly becoming this unrecognizable person where you're like, I don't sure what's happened to you, but your child has wound you up and turned you into something that I know you wish you weren't. You know this is true, even if you don't have kids, because we all have these moments where we find ourselves backed into a corner, where we find ourselves trying to figure out a solution or an answer to something that we just don't have a solution or an answer to. And to be more resilient, to help you get through this, it's really helpful to understand how in those moments of fluttering anxiety do you cope? How do you kind of manage yourself through that? That's why I'm speaking to Ron Carucci. He is the co-founder and managing partner of Navalent, and he works with CEOs and executives pursuing transformative change for their organizations, their leaders, and industries. He's drawing on 30 years experience helping these executives challenge strategy and change in organization and leadership. If you know Ron, you probably know him because he is one of the most prolific creators of awesome articles that I know. He publishes it on HBR, Harvard Business Review. It's about once every 45 minutes, as far as I can tell. It's, it's ridiculous. And he's also been featured in Fortune and CEO Magazine and Inc. and Business Insider, Fast Company, Smart Business. It, the list goes on. Ron's a prolific writer. He's a prolific podcast guester as well. So you will, if you like him, which I know you will, you'll find him all over the place. One of the articles that he wrote, which I thought was outstanding, was on HBR, and it was how to answer the unanswerable question. And it was a very sympathetic and insightful article uh, helping leaders deal with that moment. And I'm like, brilliant. I'm going to get Ron on, and we're going to have that very conversation. So, Ron, welcome. Michael, it is so good to be back with you. So good to talk to you again. Uh, And I'm so grateful you're doing this podcast for so many leaders and parents and people living alone who are fumbling their way through this season of odd life. And I'm so grateful that you're, you found a way to be helpful and I'm so privileged to be part of it. Oh, thanks, Ron. You know, it's, it's, um, this is the second season and it's been a joy so far because I've loved doing podcasts, but with the Great Work podcast, which I ran for many years, I lost my way a little bit. I wasn't quite sure why I was doing it anymore. Um, but with We Will Get Through This, it feels like there's this through line around resilience, which opens up all sorts of conversations about, you know, how do you be a, a smarter, better, wiser, <laughs> more flexible, more adaptive person? How do you understand teams? How do you understand families? How do you understand organizations in a different light? So I get to talk to really cool people, but with this nice little connecting through line. So it's it's been a real pleasure. 
Well, and I, I know it's helping many people. I've sent your links to clients and friends and I know just a, a caring, Hey, I, Hey, I thought, I thought of you when I heard this, have a listen. I hope it helps. Oh, thank it you. It's such a kind gesture for somebody who, you know, I mean, we all know we're getting barraged with voluminous content. You know, <laughs> I don't yeah, think exactly. the world needs one more article on how to have a good zoom meeting, but we'll probably right. see more of them. But I do think entering the inner territory of somebody's soul where this battle's really playing out um, and uh, where there's, we're facing uncertainty by the minute um, and we're, we're bringing eight things at once, a parent, a teacher, a, a gym teacher, the mm. art teacher, the, the boss, the direct report, the salesperson, the housekeeper, the launderer. Um, resilience takes on an entire new meaning in that moment. Um, and in that frayed moment, when someone comes up and says to you, when are we getting our stimulus checks? You know, <laughs> right. It, it could put you right over the edge right. and you don't even know why. So when you, how do you know when you're, when you've gone over the edge? I mean, I think awareness of that is actually perhaps a really useful, helpful starting point. How do you coach and support people to start noticing when they're moving from mostly in control to slightly out of control? Well, when you've, you've reached for the stapler to throw it, it's probably a really good sign you're very close to <laughs> the edge. But I think, I, you're, so physiologically, your body will tell you. Mm. you you'll feel a racing heart. You'll feel um, your voice tensing up. You'll feel your hands start to shake. Your body will send you all kinds of feedback messages that something's amiss. So I certainly learn, learning to pay attention to those is really important. But I think even before that, um, you, 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 if you're staring at a Zoom screen and you find yourself distracted by the painting on somebody's wall in their house and you've missed four minutes of content because you're checking out people's living rooms, you know you're already over capacity. Your, right. your brain, your, your, your frontal lobe has extended all of its battery wear. Um, right. I had a great metaphor the other day that what Zoom is doing to our brains is the equivalent of bringing your cell phone into the forest, right? You know, right. The battery drains three times as fast because it's looking for a tower. Uh-huh. Um, and on a Zoom call where you're, you're doing social media, you're doing email, you're doing, um, uh, you're looking at 15 boxes of faces and all their backgrounds and their children and their laundry, right. um, and also looking at your face to make sure you don't look foolish. Um, <laughs> exactly. Your battery in your frontal lobe is draining. Um, your amygdala is trying to get attention to you because you're anxious about paying your bills that month. You're anxious. Right, you're about- amygdala, that that kind of unconscious lizard brain that's in the fight or flight mode. Exactly, and you're triggered by the flight of the, your expenses. D- did your wife or husband uh, go get the car the way they were supposed to? What, what were you mm-hmm. supposed to go pick up milk? And and so the, the, you have to just understand that the way you have to always recharge a phone battery more commonly when you're not in your towers your brain needs to be recharged more frequently in these days than ever before. So you've got to get out, get exercise, do all the things we know to do, but don't make time for. So there's that piece around self-care and I love the, that ability to understand that your body is giving you clues as to when you're in a state, because I've said for years, you know, the body leads the brain and it's hard for me. It's it's much easier for me to make that as an intellectual statement. Ironically enough, because I tend to be a little less rather than more connected to the kind of the wisdom of the body. But I also think it's useful for people to understand specifically 
How does your body tell you that you're in a place of overwhelm or distraction or anxiety? Because we will have different manifestations of what that stress looks like. For some, it's sweaty palms. Some of it's twitchy legs. That's one of mine. Um, Sweaty palms. Who knows what else it might be? But it's useful just to get grounded in going, oh, look, this is how I know I'm stressed because my body has done that thing, whatever it might be for you. And I think that equally as unique as the signals are, Michael, so is the way back to replenishment. Um, and I think not, no, not only knowing when your body is g- gone on red alert, you know, that your gas tank is mm. dangerously low and you shouldn't probably be around people right now. Yeah. Um, your, what, what your body will take to recharge is unique. For some people, it's physical activity. For some people, it's rest. For some people, it's a good book. Um, for my wife and I, we have found out, uh, volunteering, getting our, getting out of the home and going and bringing meals right. to people, or we, we have been feeding a local hospital workers. We did a little fundraiser and we're able to bring a bunch of meals to the ER workers. And oh, that's great. Yeah. Oh my gosh. But, but when that day was over last week, Michael, all I could think of was I, I, all the, how my mental health and my sense of well-being and yeah. all the dopamine that I got from just the joy of knowing those people are sacrificing things I will never understand. Got, yeah. got me out of my own miasma, got me out of my own silly, you know, spirals and frustrations. It was so just nice. so good to not think about me. And so, uh, you know, whatever it is for you that will allow you to step away. And, and one of the biggest impediments I'm hearing from leaders is guilt. If they step away for a break, if they step away to take care of themselves, they feel guilty. Um, and that guilt is such, you, you have to not see it as a reliable source of information. It is not, inf- it's informing you that putting more into whatever you're doing is the right thing to do. It's, it's a lie. You've just got to resist feeling badly about taking care of yourself. It's, it, we've all heard the, 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 um, it's a little bit cliche now, but the analogy of when the oxygen masks drop, you have sure. to put them on first on a plane. Yeah. This is the reason why. Ron, let me take you to that specific occasion you're talking about in that that HBR article that I like so much, which is uh, you have found yourself on the end of a difficult question, a question you don't even really know the answer to. And of course, that can happen if you're in a formal position in a team or an organization. It can just happen if you're a human being and you've got other people around you and they're looking to you for the answer. And when they ask you that question where you're like, I don't know the answer to that, and I feel like I should know the answer to that for some reason. What are the steps for managing this so that you answer this or you manage this moment with as much grace as possible? And I love the word grace, Michael, because that's really what it requires in that moment. Because so many questions arrive with an edge of anxiety, an edge of accusation. Uh, yeah. A hint of resentment of having, of having to ask the question. And oh, I love that you're saying that. I'm, I'm going to stop you because I just want people to hear. Can you just say that again? Because it's so important. <laughs> so often the question that you're being asked arrives with a hint of insistence or an edge of yeah. angry and re- anger resentment or a, a more than a subtle inference that you should have already answered the question. I shouldn't have had to ask it. Right. Um, and, and a level of absoluteness that no que- no question should have. So often the, you know, when are we going to get our loan from the government? Or right. when, when are we all going back to the office to work? Or, or so, some some sense that there's a an answer you should already have. It, and the trigger for the leader, you have to put a pause button. You have to recognize your own anxiety for feeling exposed and vulnerable, for feeling accused and therefore wanting to be defensive. 
Mm. Uh, your own sense of I'm going to look foolish if I babble my way through this. And all of that happens in a matter of milliseconds. Yeah, that's um, right. And then so you, so I, I've watched so many leaders just start babbling. They just start speaking words and they're <laughs> coherent and they're unintelligible. And all they're doing is invoking more anxiety in people because now they've right. really like a, they're hiding something and they, they don't know. So putting a pause, stopping when the question arrives, taking a breath and asking yourself, What's the question this person is really asking? What is the need underneath this question that maybe I can be more helpful with? And shaping a response that's actually helpful, even if that response isn't an answer to the unanswerable question. So one of the things that I'd offer up to the folks listening in is that when Ron says, take a breath, it is impossible in the moment to remember to do that. You you can't kind of go, yeah, that's a good that's a good idea. I should just remember to do that next time. You have to start trying to build that in almost as a habitual response, a reactive response, you know, and preparing yourself by almost writing if this then that uh, questions will prime you to be able to have a better chance of doing that. If I'm asked a question that makes me feel a bit fluttery or a bit panicked, I will take a breath, take a second breath, and then start to answer it. And in some ways, you've got to start embedding those kind of reflective behaviors, reflexive behaviors, to give yourself the best chance to do this, because otherwise, you're in amygdala land, fight or flight, panic, and it's all going <laughs> to hell in a handbasket. Well, I think one of the things I, I coach my executives to do, Michael, is to just announce to people at the, at the beginning of any virtual town hall or beginning of any season of questions to say, hey, look, you're going to have lots of questions during this season. I won't have all the answers and I'm not going to try to. Um, so just know that when you come to me with a question, um, I'm going to start with the assumption that I don't know. And then I'll start by building with what I do know. When I do know something, I will tell you that with my conviction. But for the most yeah. part... Um, I'm not going to, I'm not going to insult you with my speculation or my spin. Nice. And if you put people on alert in advance that you're already adopting a posture of, I don't know versus I have to know, yeah. um, they can, they'll show you the, to your point before they'll show you the grace before they even ask you the unanswerable question. Then you're free to form a speculative hunch, uh, mm -hmm. a, we set a table with options, um, to sort of talk about, you know, I hear your question about the government uh, small business stimulus, but what I'm hearing is a concern about your own economic well-being. Am I right? Right. And you can. So this is what you, you mentioned before about into, into the place where you're acknowledging the need that people were afraid to voice. So that's really helpful. Um, and I'm sorry, if I, was, I talked over you a, a, a bit there, and but that's the point I wanted to ask about, which is what you're hearing, and this is the aha moment I'm having is. When somebody comes to you with a question that has that edge to it that you are talking about before, that kind of accusation, that anger, that why haven't you already told me this, what actually that question is pointing to is something that is a deeper need that they have. And what sort of needs might be there, Ron, when you think about what sort of needs people are like, this is the thing that I really need an answer to or reassurance around, what sort of thing might that be? Well, and I think I want to I want to build on what you said there, Michael, because I think it's a really important thing. We often take answer and reassurance and assume it's the same thing, that an answer is reassurance, and often an answer will make things worse because it's a, not a real answer. Well, I nice. think reassurance 
or acknowledgement comes in two forms. One is, um, I, I hear the question you're asking about unemployment. I hear the question you're asking about when are we going back to the office? I hear the mm -hmm. question you're asking about um, uh, do we wear masks during the day in our meetings or not? Um, and what I can tell you is some of those decisions aren't made yet, but what I hear is anxiety over your own health. Or right. I, I'm wondering if there's a deeper question there about your own needs uh, or your own fear of your own well-being. Um, yeah. is, there, is there something else that we really could explore there? And, and gently and kindly wade into what the deeper need is. When you hear people's irrational anxiety of, you know, like I, I had one client, um, somebody on her team sort of had, had reached her limits and she started, started crying and she said, when is this all going to be over? Um, and my client with the best of intentions thought she would say, offer reassurance. And she said, well, what I've heard is that we may be starting going back to the office in waves by early June. Uh -huh. And within an hour, she had five text messages. Around, is it true going back <laughs> right. in early June? Yeah. And it's like, you know, that saying a rumor without a leg to stand on, will still find another way of getting around. It will like a bad rash. <laughs> yeah. And, and really what the person needed to know was that they could, they could endure this. What they were saying right. was, how much long, longer can I endure this? And in the cases where you see uh, somebody who's lost their own way, their own footing, sometimes the best, the best thing to do is offer a question back. Ask them, what's been the hardest part about this for you? Mm -hmm. Or um, what's something you had to learn through all this that surprised you that you're capable of learning? Or what's your worst nightmare here? What's the thing? What's the horror movie reel that's looping in your head that's right. keeping you awake? Because that helps them discover their own sense of irrational versus real fears. Um, ask them, what's the worst thing you've ever endured in your whole life? Right. Because what, you, what you're doing is you're helping them tap into their own self-sufficiency, their own sense of resilience uh, right. from their own past endurance and also their own ability to navigate um, – uh, you know, to sort, sort out the facts for themselves. And sometimes leaders make people more dependent on them by offering answers that people already had themselves. And sometimes the greatest gift we can give our children uh, or those we lead is the ability to self-soothe in a sense yes. by discovering answers that are hidden beneath their own fears. You know, it reminds me of a conversation I had with an economist, a Yale economist many years ago, I wish I could remember his name. I think it's Michael something, but no matter. He had a he had a singular approach which I thought was so helpful. He would ask people on a scale of one to ten um, to rate themselves about how they thought they would cope with that situation. It's like so on a scale of one to ten, how do you feel that you're you're doing with this, you know, when we're recording this, it's the COVID nineteen thing, you know, dealing with this pandemic. And they'll give you a number between one and ten. And then you respond, and this is the brilliant counterintuitive piece, you respond by saying, why didn't you give yourself a lower number? Mm. <laughs> and they go, well, you know, because, and then you invite them into a way of going, here's what's working. Here's what I know to be true about me. Here's what I know to be uh, within my bounds of control or within my bounds of influence. And it opens up a self-soothing uh, approach and a self-awareness approach around capabilities and confidence and confidence, but in such a cunning way that you don't even know that it's been done to you. And I love that. Since I heard that question, I'm like, I need to find ways of ask, uh, asking that question. 
And in some ways, what you're suggesting here is for leaders perhaps to do the same, which is like, what do you know to be true about your own ability to get through something like this? Yep. And and what and sometimes the alternative question to a lower number is, what would it take for you to believe? Or mm-hmm. if you wanted to give yourself a, a greater rating, what would that require? What yeah. would you need to in order to feel more resilient, more confident, more hopeful? Um, yeah, that the, that's that's a trickier thing for me. I know that that feels like the the obvious place to go because you're like, let me let me help you get up up the scale. But I know if I just given you a number like four. And you're like, what would, you know, what, how would he get to a five? I'm like, I don't know how to answer that. And I feel like you're now jollying me up my own ladder. So in mm. some ways you're not hearing my own reality. There is a, there is a, a, a twist on what you're suggesting there, Ron, that I, I'm taking from the pages of Roger Martin's book. And he says, once you hear somebody's position, Rather than arguing about whether it's feasible or not, the question to ask is what needs to be true for us to get there? Mm-hmm. And what that does is it stops a debate around is this a fantasy or is this not a fantasy, but it starts getting people into the practicality of how to move from A through to B. And I've always found that to be an incredibly helpful question because it stops debate around hypotheticals and start uncovering what's possible and what what's not possible. Well, I think I, I think even more fundamental to your point, Michael, is some people um, they they find safety in their panic, right? Sure. The, the, the pace the place of irrational fear or making up monsters under the bed that may or may not be there, or yep. the place of of um, of, um, of excessive dependence on others is yep. what makes them most safe. The idea, self-sufficiency terrifies them. And so sometimes they're not ready to even hear a question about a lower or a higher number. Um, and sometimes just showing them compassion and empathy where they're at uh, can be the, you know, because I don't think, I don't think in many cases this, this, um, this crisis is causing a lack of resilience. I think in many cases it's also revealing it. Um, right. And, and for the people who were never prepared for it to begin with, who don't know how to dig deep because life's never required it of them or because they've never learned to, yes. um, y- you know, the, the, the lessons are much longer term. And so there's no point in trying to help them, you know, uh, overcome years of, of dependent behaviors, you know, in one crisis. And so, you know, o- over time, if you're going to lead them or coach them or parent them, you, know, you, you have a longer-term vision of how you might be helpful, but in the near term, if they can't get up, they can't get up. And and so get, getting down on the floor with them and just comforting them without, you know, showing them saccharine reassurance or, yeah. or false reassurance. But sometimes people just need to be comforted in the, in the moment they're in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ron, one of the points you make in this article is around practicing tone. And I'd be curious to know where you think leaders get the tone slightly wrong and what they should be doing instead of that. I think, especially through digital medium, where some people have cameras on, some people have cameras off, and also where we're trying to, you know, we're trying to recreate a 3D world and a 2D world. And so there'll be nuances on somebody's face, there'll be nuances in somebody's body language, but it won't be this, it's not quite the same as if you're in person. 
Right. And I think leaders have to be extra mindful and self and sort of self-regulating around if they're triggered by their own defensiveness or their own fears, or somebody in the room asks a question that makes them feel exposed and vulnerable, their tone of voice will shift. Their, um, the, 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 the pace of their voice might increase. Uh, they'll sound a little bit more curt. Yes. And, and in a hypervigilant world where everybody's reading cues in a much more hypervigilant way, the, 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 the volume can go up in people's heads much quicker. And mm-hmm. so it really does behoove leaders to be that much more attentive. I, I, I often will have leaders rehearse right. um, an array of things with me before they speak to a room, you know, a virtual room. Um, and we'll talk about how do you, what is your compassionate tone? What is your hunch tone? What is your declarative tone? How will you use humor? Um, how will you use self-deprecation? How will you use vulnerability? How will you talk about yes. your own pain and in what, and in what dose where it's manageable and that it doesn't hijack the conversation onto you? And so we'll create a repertoire of response ranges and response physio- physiological embodiments for your voice, your face, your, your and body, and we'll work on those so that a leader, when whatever their default cue might be or their default mode might be in any given moment, they have the opportunity to step back and look at a broader array of options for themselves and give themselves yeah, I- permission to step back and go, can I just have a second to think about that for a minute? Right. Um, I love the that. Other thing that I think I, is all, oh, sorry, so going. The leader's arsenal is the apology. Is the sometimes you'll get it wrong. You'll you'll be defensive. You'll be angry. You'll be dismissive, not intentionally, but that will be the affect. You can yeah. always circle back and say, you know what? I thought more about that part of the meeting twenty minutes ago, and I blew it. I'm sorry. Um, and I think that's the greatest grace is the greatest gift you can give your people right now. And one of the best ways to model that is by asking for it when you need it. I love that you're pointing to an awareness of and an active management of the process. You know, as a facilitator, I always go, you know, honestly, process will often trump content because if you have great process and average content, that is going to be a better experience than great content with an average process. So that ability to as you're in communication to watch what's happening and speak to what's happening can be an extremely powerful piece. It's a, it's a form of emotional intelligence, which is like, whoa, that was a, you know, that was a tough question. I could feel myself tightening up there. So I want to stay loose because above all, I want you to remember these three key things. And just that self-acknowledgement tells people what's going on so they know that you know that they know that you know that they know what's happening right now and that is actually part of the process of creating psychological safety in the in the communication that's actually happening those are game-changing moments michael when a leader can demonstrate that level of awareness and consciousness to be to be highly imperfect and flawed in a moment that we all know we're flawed and and to your point they know you're you're flawed they don't know that you know you're flawed. Uh, <laughs> That's right. They don't know that, that you know that you're flawed. I love that. That's perfect. And then in the moment where you have to turn to the person who's crying and say, I'm, I'm wondering if the real question here isn't about your own fear of your own economic well-being or your job or you're worried something how. You've earned your right to do that because you've modeled it for yourself. And your compassion and your empathy will be that much more appreciated by them because you will have gone first. Ron, I've loved this conversation. Thank you. 
Um, for people who want a little more Ron Carucci in their life, where can they find you in the world? I'd love to keep chatting with your listeners, Michael. So you can come find us at my website, Navalent, N-A-V-A-L-E-N-T.com. We've got lots of great videos and articles and white papers. We have a free ebook if you're leading some great change in your life right now. Navalent.com slash transformation has a free ebook on leading leading big changes in your life and in your organizations. Um, also on LinkedIn and Twitter. So come hang out with me there and I'd love to keep chatting. And like I say, um, you could go into HBR um, site and Ron will have about 9,800 articles there as well. So there's all sorts of ways to catch up with his great work. <laughs> Ron, it's been a total pleasure. You're awesome. Thank you so much. Michael, it's always a delight to be with you. Thanks so much for all your good work in the world. Take good care. Hey, it's Michael here. Two things before you go. The first is a gift. The second is a request. The gift I want you to go to mbs.works and hunt down the year of living brilliantly. Really, it's some of my best work because it is a 52 week, 52 teacher, absolutely free video based course where I spend a lot of time curating some of the smartest people I know and saying, teach me the best of what you've got. If you're looking to really step up to have a year that's just a little bit sweeter, a little bit better than the year you've just had, that is a terrific resource. So please go and check that out. Absolutely free, no obligation, nothing required other than for you to sign up and get going on it. And then for the request, I just want what every podcast host wants, which is a little bit of love. So if you'd consider going to iTunes or Spotify or whatever your favorite podcast platform is and giving the podcast a bit of a rating and a bit of a review, that would be amazing. Thank you.